Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm talking with Nomi Stolzenberg and David Myers, co-authors of the book American Shedham, The Making of Curious Joel, a Hasidic Village in Upstate New York. Nomi and David, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Great to be with you, Mark. Well, it's great to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourselves. Uh, Sure, I'll go first. Um, So I am a law professor at the University of Southern California. I've been uh, a member of the law school faculty there since the late 1980s. Um, And I came to USC after clerking for the uh, chief judge of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, And that was one year after graduating from Harvard Law School in 1987. And I mentioned that because I was in law school in the heyday of critical legal studies and really the moment of the birth of critical race theory and critical feminist legal theory. And those have been really significant influences on how I look at the law and in particular how I look at issues of law and religion. And um, this is David. Um, I uh, teach Jewish history at UCLA, where I have been on the faculty for 30 years. Um, my work uh, focuses on modern Jewish intellectual and cultural history. Um, I studied uh, and received my PhD at Columbia with uh, the great Yosef Chaim Yushalmi, uh, one of the great Jewish historians of the last century, um, certainly ha- half century. Um, and my work um, has typically focused on uh, European Jewish intellectuals, um, as well as the history of Zionism and Israel-Palestine. And so this book, Mark, American Shtetl, really represents a significant departure uh, for me. Um, it's not been a sudden shift because uh, we've been at work on this book for um, more than a decade and a half. Um, and uh uh, it's gratifying now to see it uh, come to the point of publication. It really is a fascinating book because of the way that the two of you integrate, uh, you know, questions of American law, questions of of American society. Uh, you also talk about European history, uh, Jewish history, Jewish culture. What was it that led you to uh, undertake the topic of, of studying this one uh, village in, in New York? Mm-hmm. So it really proceeded in two stages. Um, And initially, um, uh, it was just me before it became a collaborative project. In 1994, the United States Supreme Court handed down an opinion that got a lot of press and a lot of public attention that was addressing a challenge to the constitutionality of a law that the state of New York had passed authorizing this community, this municipality, which was founded by this one particular group of Hasidic Jews, it allowed this municipality to form its own public school district within the confines of the village so that uh, the constituency of of the school district um, would be very religiously homogeneous. So uh, somebody went to court, a very interesting character by the name of uh, Lou Grummet, 
and said, this must be a violation of the principle of separation of church and state that's in that's embodied in the what we call the establishment clause of the First Amendment. This is the clause of the First Amendment that says that governments can't make any law um, establishing religion. So the Supreme Court handed down a decision in 1994. That was a long time ago. And I had already established myself as a scholar of law and religion. Um, and this was an extremely interesting case about law and religion. So I joined a small band of First Amendment and law and religion scholars in just writing about that one case. But my my intuition at the time was that this case and the issues it addressed were really just the tip of the iceberg and that you really could not begin to really understand not only the community, but the role that American law plays vis-a-vis the community without a much, much more bottom-up approach, um, a much more bottom-up analysis in a two-fold sense, meaning both you just needed a much more textured picture uh, uh, of, of how the community actually functions internally and, and, and what the nature of its relationship to the outside world is, but also from the bottom up in the sense that in terms of uh, the legal issues presented by the community, um, the Supreme Court case was focusing exclusively on what we call public law issues. That is to say, legal issues pertaining to the community's public institutions, its governmental entities, the village, the public school district. But in order to really understand how this community functions and how it's enabled by American law, you really have to shift your focus to the community's private institutions and private law, that is to say, the elements of our legal system um, that regulate um, the private market, the real estate market, um, the, 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 the rights and um, obligations of private associations, of the family. So um, I sort of let that idea simmer for a while, but I happen to have close by uh, someone who was the indispensable person to provide that really bottom-up textured portrait of the community. That is I. Um, <laughs> so I would look over my shoulder at home because it's important to add for the listeners out there that we're not only the co-authors of this book, but Nomi and I happen to be married. Um, and I would be looking over her shoulder as she would be exploring these different intriguing religious subcommunities populating the landscape of the United States. And one of them really caught my attention, this community called Curious Joel, um, because it really reflected um, a phenomenon that has been of great interest to both Nomi and me for a very long time, which is uh, the struggle of Jews in particular uh, to assert a strong form of collective identity in the modern world. Um, in the face of all sorts of countervailing currents and threats, the most obvious, of course, would be uh, Nazi totalitarianism, um, which sought to uh, remove uh, Jews physically uh, through an act of uh, genocide. But there are other threats that Jews have faced in the modern world to their idea of uh, collective identity, such as liberalism, liberal integrationism, right, assimilation. 
Um, and so the struggle of Jews to assert a strong form of, of communal or collective identity um, has been a recurrent interest of mine, as well as a periodic interest of Nomi's. Um, we wrote an article early in our careers about this. Um, and then I saw Kiris Joel, which is this stunning counterexample to the general trend of uh, uh, of, uh, uh, of the evisceration of that strong form of community. This was a very strong form of community that managed to its- assert itself in the United States, right? In the United States, where the Constitution asserts that uh, there should be no state establishment of, of religion. In the United States, where the principle of separation of religion and state is uh, enshrined in our uh, legal DNA. Um, and I really asked myself, what was it about this community uh, that was at one level anomalous in Jewish history, and yet seemingly so at home in the United States? Because when we look closely, we couldn't find many examples of Jewish communities, certainly in the diaspora, that had managed to uh, a degree uh, achieved the degree of homogeneity that Kiris Joel, and none that had achieved achieved uh, uh, validation in the form of incorporation as a municipality uh, recognized by the state. But when we look closely at the United States, we saw, in fact, that as I suggested a minute ago, the landscape was really populated with all sorts of strong forms of particularly religious community um, that have not only survived but flourished. Sometimes, um, in the face of and in some kind of uh, uh, ironic sense, um, bolstered by, strengthened by, fortified by conflict. Uh, perhaps the most famous example of such a community would be uh, the Mormons, um, who uh, really sought to assert a strong form of collective identity, uh, sought uh, recognition as a legal entity, as a polity, uh, first in Nauvoo, Illinois, and then later in, uh, in Salt Lake City, um, and in what became the state of Utah. Um, and yet along the way, uh, conflict was a constant. Well, uh, there's a very similar story for, uh, for Curious Joel. And in fact, when you look back at the origins of the community, you'll see that conflict has been present from really the inception, that in fact, the founder of uh, the Satmar Hasidic dynasty, Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum, came from a family for which conflict and combat were constant features and were in some sense embraced as essential in order to uh, face off against and vanquish uh, the forces of corruption and pollution in the modern world. And that you know, concept of, of, of conflict and combat, as, as the chief you described in the book, is almost written into the, the DNA of the community. And, and is, as you've illustrated, it's you know, one of the keys to success, how they've learned how to use various legal tools and, and societal uh, uh, norms to, uh, to you know, persevere and, 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 and prosper as a community thanks to combat and, and, and sometimes confrontation. Yeah. Well, I just want to say that because maybe not all of the listeners are familiar with, with Hasidism, um, of which the Satmar group is one branch today, the largest uh, branch of Hasidim in the world. Hasidism began as a movement of rebellion or protest against uh, what was the mainstream uh, Jewish culture uh, in Eastern Europe, a culture which really established um, a very clear hierarchy uh, in which, um, at, at the top of which stood elite uh, Torah scholars. Hasidism sought at once to infuse 
more piety into the Judaism of its day and to democratize Judaism, to sort of uh, upend this hierarchy um, and infuse both more piety and democracy. Now, as it, the movement developed, um, uh, the piety remained, the democracy less so, uh, because um, Hasidism also developed uh, a new model of leadership for uh, Jewish communities, and that is the notion of the charismatic Rebbe or tzaddik, um, who was almost understood as an as an intercessor between human and divine realms. So major Hasidic, uh, major branches of this movement called Hasidism established what were known as courts, at the center of which stood the Rebbe or the tzaddik. Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum was one such Rebbe or tzaddik. Um, who established his dynasty first in uh, the city of Satmar or Satumare. Um, it was previously in Hungary, and then after 1920 and the Treaty of Trianon became Romania, the Romanian city of Satumare. And there he established his community for 10 years or so uh, before surviving the Holocaust in a very interesting way, coming to the United States, bringing with him that combative spirit that both was rooted in Hasidism and particularly present in the Teitelbaum family, um, and then parlayed that combative spirit um, into the uh, complete rejuvenation, the rebirth of his uh, community that had been decimated by the Holocaust. Um, along the way, conflict was present. Um, it was embraced. Um, and um, you know, one of the laudatory pamphlets about Joel Teitelbaum uh, produced by his followers uh, was uh, was entitled um, Ishmil Chama, uh, a warrior, man of war, um, very characteristic of his uh, combat for uh, spiritual purity in the world. Mm -hmm. But it's important to add that that combative or even martial spirit has always coexisted with something quite the opposite, which is um, a theological commitment to political quietism. So like many separatist religious groups, um, that impulse to separate from the rest of society is attached to uh, a theological belief that the exercise of power, the exercise of political power is inherently corrupt and something that a pure spiritual community has to separate itself from. Um, so there has to be, you know, a renunciation of participation in politics, in the exercise of political power. So you have this real contradiction <laughs> between that impulse, which is completely genuine and sincere, and yet it's almost a necessity in order to defend their right to separate <laughs> and to defend themselves both from external attack and internal challenges, it's necessary to do battle against these external and internal so, threats. If it weren't complicated enough, I have to add one more uh, uh, strand to this fabric. Um, we have this combative spirit that we've talked about, which um, in the first phase of Satmar history was really directed against other Jews. We have this quietism, which holds that uh, it is the obligation of Jews to adhere to the laws of the Gentile state uh, until the time of the Messianic uh, uh, end. Um, 
The third strand is a tradition of political accommodationism. Um, alongside these uh, character traits and theological principles was already in Europe um, a willingness on the part of the Satmar community to engage uh, political authorities in order to advance the interests of uh, the Satmar community. Um, this belongs to a long tradition in pre-modern Jewish life known as Stadlanut, uh, the practice of intercession whereby uh, someone would be designated to represent the community with Gentile authorities um, and was picked up and I would say sharpened um, and perfected by uh, the Satmar community uh, already in Europe, uh, this principle of accommodation, which which sort of cut against uh, the quietism, uh, but at the same time also coexisted with it. So you had a kind of um, kind of interesting thread uh, of political attitudes and behavior uh, that already was forged in uh, Europe before Satmar came to the United States. And then when it did, it was transformed in very interesting ways. One of the questions that, that I had as, as I was reading the book is, is, is how the experience in Europe, you know, shaped or perhaps confirmed uh, Teitelbaum's uh, approach to building a community in the United States, because you describe uh, in the book about the, the experience. I was thinking about the, the accommodation and the quietism was reflected in the degree to which they received that degree of, of official uh, tolerance, uh, maybe acceptance might it might be an appropriate word. Maybe it's a little too strong, but because I think I think of uh, particular, for example, the the picture of where uh, 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 Rabbi Bomb is meeting with King Carol of Romania, and how it, it and how there is this sense that you have this authority that the 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 head of state of Romania is is saying that in effect that you know you have this picture which implies that they that he is accepting of their presence here, and how that gets disrupted first by the uh, reassignment of the territory to Hungary then the uh the 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 you know the Nazis coming in in, in uh, 1944 and 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 cleaning out the community and and I can't help but wonder about how that you know might have shaped Pedalbaum's approach to uh to to deal with me because as one of the things to be clear this is one of the things I have so fascinating about uh, title bomb and 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 th that question of 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 community is how he for all of the sense of community he is you know very adamantly opposed to zionism and, and how he's opposed to for on religious grounds to the creation of of, of a jewish state and how that which so many jews you know coming out of the second world war experience were like this is what we need to, to preserve ourselves he rejects that, but at the same time, I can't help but wonder what was it that he took that experience that he said we needed to have that he needed to have in America to ensure that they had a community that not only you know upheld the law, but you know maybe avoided you know that you know having quietism and acceptance lead to something similar happening again. Yeah, well, there is a way in which we can understand the creation of Curious Joel as a countersign, as a kind of theological political vision of. Rabbi Tatabams that stood in contrast to, but at the same time shared some qualities with the experiment underway in Palestine and later the state of Israel. Zionism for him was, as he described it in his famous book, uh, devoted one of his two books devoted to the subject in 1959 by El Moshe, the greatest form of spiritual pollution the world has ever seen. And what he thought 
uh, Zionism represented was an attempt by human beings to arrogate to themselves the right to hasten the messianic end. It was that was an entirely a divine prerogative, and Zionism, he argued, um, uh, sought to uh, uh, assert itself as a kind of divine force in hastening the messianic process. Um, but I believe that something of Zionism sort of, well, it constantly stuck in his craw. He was constantly, he was obsessed with Zionism. Um, he was undone by Zionism. Um, and I th- something about Zionism, I think, also figured into his own vision of, of creating um, an enclave um, that, uh, that, that would uh, really provide that safe haven uh, for his community. Um, Europe um, seemed to have the potential to do that until it didn't. So, um, it, you know, it's important to note that Teitelbaum and Satmers learned from uh, the European experience. Satumare or Satmar was not an isolated, segregated encla- spiritual enclave. It was a diverse, multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual city uh, in uh, in uh, first in in Hungary in the north northeast quadrant of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and then in in Romania. Um, the experience of living amongst the Gentiles uh, allowed uh, the community to flourish for about ten years until March 19, nineteen forty four, when the Nazis. Uh, broke the alliance between Hitler and Admiral Horthy and began a process of rapid deportation of three quarters of the Hungarian community. And then when, uh, when, when Teitelbaum came to the United States, he felt, I think, um, that it was possible to and necessary uh, to um, use all of those instruments of uh, communal fortification and governance that had been uh, tested in Europe. Um, but, um, he also felt that it was possible to sort of, um, uh, achieve a degree of, uh, of insularity, uh, that was not possible, um, in, in Europe, create, um, a true spiritual enclave. Uh, and there's an interesting development in sort of the imagination of what that was, because when Satmars in the United States thought of, uh, of the old country, they thought of it as sort of a, an ideal of uh, a homogeneous uh, spiritual enclave. But that wasn't what Satomari was. America, in interesting and seemingly ironic counterintuitive ways, afforded that opportunity. And Satmars in America felt a sense of entitlement, both because of what they had undergone in the Holocaust and because they believed that the United States was a different kind of uh, political entity, a machut chesed, a kingdom of grace. And just to highlight um, something sort of embedded in what David just said, um, you had originally asked, you know, I think you framed the question in terms of what might the community have learned from its experience in Europe um, that would have sort of, what lessons did they learn in terms of how to avoid something like a Holocaust. I don't think that, I mean, David, correct me if you think I'm putting this incorrectly, but I think it would be a mistake to think that the quest of this community was to find a place of refuge in the sense of physical safety. The quest 
was to find a refuge in the sense of spiritual purity. In fact, the belief was it was by virtue of not um, being spiritually pure um, that Jews had, dare I say, really brought the Holocaust upon themselves. I mean, that's a shocking thing to say, but that is part of the theology. So the imperative is to be spiritually pure and to find conditions that will permit this collective exercise of spiritual purity to take place. As you make clear in the book, though, that getting, you know, uh, uh, you're finding that, that, that place where they could be spiritually pure was not easy, that, that it, it took uh, the better so part of, a, of I'm sorry. <laughs> and not so pure. <laughs> Well, I, I, I was thinking about the, the, the about how it, it took him a quarter of a century to to eventually establish Curious Joel, and, and yet it was something where, as you explained, it, that you know, it wasn't just the matter of, of finding that community. It was they were doing so at a time where they were facing increasing impurity in the world. That you're talking about this is happening at a time you know that they're, they're still searching for this community in the 1960s when you have uh, you know the the the, the baby boom generation, when you have the sexual revolution, when you have have all of these social forces which are, are, are changing the country as a whole, it, which, if anything, you, makes the, the, the need for, for that uh, commu- uh, community more of an imperative. And, and yet, as you explained, it was very difficult to find that place where they could happen. They, they were hardly alone in terms of you know, establishing a Hasidic community, but to find one that, that met all of, of, of uh, what you know, title bomb the community wanted, as you explained, was not easy. It wasn't simply a matter of saying, we're going to go ahead and, and, you know, just, you know, start, you know, occupying this building, or we're going to go ahead and just, you know, move into this neighborhood. They, they, they wanted something much more, and it took a long time to achieve that. No, I mean, it, it, it was, it, it was very hard. So just to give some historical context, Joel Teitelbaum um, arrives in the United States on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, 1946, September, 1946. Um, uh, he makes his way from Manhattan to Williamsburg, which becomes and remains the largest center of Satmar uh, demographic concentration in the world, um, so Williamsburg and Brooklyn. But almost immediately, he realizes that there are seductions and allures in uh, in uh, New York City uh, that pose risks to the spiritual integrity of his community. And he entrusts his lieutenant with the task of finding a place that can become a shtetl. Again, a kind of uh, fantastical version thereof, because Satumari was nothing like the shtetl that they were imagining in the late 1940s and 1950s. It was more akin to what Fiddler on the Roof was like, Anatevka and Fiddler on the Roof. Um, and it was very hard to find uh, a community that would, uh, that would um, uh, serve the purpose. So they first sought out uh, land in Staten Island uh, in the 1950s, and that didn't work out. And then they sought out land in New Jersey, model of New Jersey in the early 1960s. And by that point, the problematic had become quite clear, which is, turns out, no group of suburban, largely white suburban dwellers were that interested in having an influx of uh, foreign Hasidic Jews in their community. Um, and that problem continued uh, through the 60s and into the early 70s until the Satmar Hasidim got wise to um, uh, the fact that uh, that suburban landowners weren't keen on selling them property. Um, and they entrusted um, the brother-in-law of one of the leaders of the community, who was not himself 
um, a religiously observant person, someone by the name of Oscar Fisher, uh, who was the brother-in-law of um, one of Joel Teitelbaum's uh, leading assistants, leading aides, a uh, man by the name of Leibish Lefkowitz, they entrusted Oscar Fisher with the task of serving as the front man for the purchase of land in the town of Monroe in Orange County, New York in 1972. They sort of figured it out. Um, they Oscar Fisher succeeded in uh, purchasing land, creating a development uh, a corporation to buy and then develop the land, um, which they did so surreptitiously. Um, uh, Satmar Hassan would come up from Brooklyn to oversee the construction of the first 80 apartments and 25 single-family homes between 1972 and 1974 in a windowless caravan, uh, lest they be detected. Um, and uh, that's how um, sort of the first settlement was created that became Curious Joel. And if I can just gloss what David said, um, you know, I think you can extract from all of these details, this very detailed narrative, and the details are so juicy and interesting. But there were really, I would say, two primary obstacles to achieving this goal of being able to create uh, an enclave outside of the city, one which was relatively easily overcome and the other which was more difficult. So the first obstacle was just, um, you know, in the United States of America, um, the only way you can do this, like the only way you can do most anything, um, is with money, capital, right? Um, you know, it's in other societies, a community, a religiously homogeneous community might gain uh, a piece of territory. It might, it might, it might achieve something that looks like uh, curious y'all, but it, that would be done in, in a top-down manner, right? A government um, officially recognizes certain communities and privileges them um, with a charter, maybe granting them land, granting them limited powers of jurisdiction and government. Right? That can happen. That's a sort of top-down approach. We don't do that here in the United States of America, um, instead, we see the formation of enclave communities from the bottom up, meaning through private initiative, meaning more specifically through the exercise of the rights of private property by buying land, by buying and developing real estate. And so on the one hand, there's an opportunity to do that here, but the ability to take that opportunity is completely contingent on having enough money, having enough capital. And what's interesting in this case is, you know, per capita, this is one of the poorest communities in America. You know, this, these are not, um, your, you know, your typical Sotmer is not a wealthy, you know, an affluent, educated person. They shun higher education. They have a low level of education. They have low income yet, right? And that's something that had, you know, other subgroups that are poor have been really stymied from being able to do what the Sotmers did, namely acquire real estate and create, because of the lack of economic resources. So interestingly, that was an obstacle the community was able to overcome by, I mean, David can describe in more details, but notwithstanding the, the poverty of the community overall, there have always been wealthy members of the community who really serve as benefactors and 
there was a kind of pooling of assets. So they were able to overcome that obstacle. Um, But the second obstacle, which David described, was much more difficult to overcome. And that was uh, nobody wanted them. (laughs) Nobody wanted them in their backyard. So rejection and exclusion. So, you know, if you think about those two obstacles, um, the first one, again, notwithstanding the, 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 the poverty of a typical member of the community, nonetheless, the community was able to amass enough wealth. So from that point of view, you could say it occupied a, a place of relative privilege economically, and I think also its ability to access capital loans and so on and so forth. It certainly also benefited from being perceived as a white community, right? So sort of whiteness and access to capital, that those were privileges they had. But once when they tried to use that capital to buy property, as soon as other white people <laughs> got wind that they were coming, um, they didn't really think of them as fellow white people. Um, and from that, from the standpoint of that second obstacle, they were really, I, you know, I wouldn't say a racialized other, but they were certainly a religious other and the alien, as David said. And, and, and there they did not occupy a position of privilege, quite the opposite. They were victims of exclusionary zoning tactics. Um, so it, it, it's an interesting um, mix of. Um, privilege and barriers. Yeah, I want to just build on that if I can, Mark, but I want to just um, uh, clarify one point. Um, Satmars have a low level of secular education, um, a very high level of Jewish education. They deeply value education. It's one of the pillars around which, on which um, the, the community is built. What they do not do, because they are um, steadfastly resistant to the idea of assimilation, is uh, 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 encourage children to attend colleges and universities. Um, something like um, 5% of the community has attended college and university, which is um, a, a very stark contrast to uh, the rate by which American Jews in general uh, attend university uh, and, and colleges. So there's one very interesting juxtaposition between the American Jewish mainstream the, American, the liberal American Jewish mainstream and the Haredi or Satmar Hasidic world. But I want to just convey, if I can, what really is the drama in the story, uh, one of the dramas in the story. And that is uh, the lightning speed with which a private association, such as this uh, aggregation of property owners in the town of Monroe um, in 1972 represented, can be transformed into a public square. So Almost overnight, um, you have this private association in, in a matter of two years or so becoming a legally recognized municipality. And how could that be? Well, it turns out to be very simple. Uh, you need to have um, uh, accumulated private property. You need to own land. Uh, you need to have uh, a, a degree of uh, of coherence, group coherence and homogeneity. Um uh, that in this instance, the free exercise of religion um, enabled. Um, and you need to have a state law, such as New York did, that allowed 500 residents of a particular piece of land uh, uh, to uh, to secede or to establish um, an existing village, uh, a, a new village within an existing town. 
Uh, all of this transpired very quickly, and it should be noted, not according to the original Satmar design. The original Satmar design was to create a shtetl, um, a neighborhood or a community within an existing polity consistent with the principle that Jews sh should not or need not assume political power themselves. That was the mistake of the Zionist. But it became clear over the course of several years, principally because of conflicts over zoning regulations that the town of Monroe uh, sought to uphold, um, for example, over what constituted a single family home or whether it was um, legal or illegal to have uh, a nursery, a school, a synagogue, a matzah bakery uh, in the basement of an apartment building. Uh, these kinds of zoning issues, in a certain sense, impelled uh, the Satmar residents of the town of Monroe to say, this isn't working. We need to transform ourselves from a shtetl into a legally recognized village. And it turned out the path was quite easy to do so. That's kind of one of the interesting points of drama in the story, how easy it is, what, an, what a seemingly um, a, a available script there is. Yeah, how easy American law makes it and how easy the principles of American democracy, local democracy, make it for a group of unincorporated, just private citizens to transform themselves into a legally incorporated municipality. It, it, for me, it was, it was one of the fascinating parts is going back to what uh, you, you were both talking about earlier about how the, the, that compromise that, that you just highlighted, Dave, where they, they were having to you know, walk you know, you know, accept some sort of, of, uh, you know, watering down of their, of their principles in order to achieve this vision of a cohesive, uh, community, maybe not quite the, the shtetl that they were, uh, that they envisioned, but, but something awfully close to it and, and how this requires them to, to assume political power. And, and this is something you highlight in the book about how they're meeting with, uh, uh, state senators, they're meeting with the, with members of Congress, they're meeting with United States senators, and, and, and how they become politically quite uh, vis visible. And and there is a, a sense, uh, you, this is not something that that is necessarily in your book, but I, I thought that the people were treading very carefully around them because this was a group that delivered themselves politically when it came time to cast ballots. Yeah. And, and how it, it reflected the fact that they were a community that, you know, if you compare it to the size of New York in general, not very large. But in terms of that region, they had enormous power because they were united and they did share, uh, you know, a, a lot of, uh, of the same goals. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, two things. One, just a sort of caveat, you were sort of um, describing a, a watering down of the of the theology or philosophy of the community in exchange for, um, you know, what was gained by that bargain. There, there is a sizable faction of Satmars, um, they're known as the dissidents within the community, who would describe what happened in just those terms. They would see the, the assumption of, of the powers of government entailed in becoming a, a, a village as a watering down, or to say the least, really as a, as a, as a, kind of sacrilege, a betrayal of, but, but the, I, I, I'm not sure, you know, that's one point of view, you know, the establishment would defend itself by saying, look, there's, there, you know, going back to the continuities with Europe. Um, we've always 
had not, you know, in, in order to shelter and insulate most of the community, we've always had, you know, designated, you know, it's the, it's the, it's an extension of the, the Stad, the Stadlanim. The, you know, there's always been people who play the role of interacting with Gentile authorities, um, that that's you know a time-honored tradition it's not inconsistent that does not represent a watering down so i just want to make clear you know it's not an objective fact that this constant that's it depends upon your understanding of what the original um theology was but your your main point is in america (laughs) um which is a system of in you know democracy, a particular form of democracy, it's interest group politics, right? And so the power of the block vote is huge. And being such a cohesive community that would, you know, um, follow the directions of the Rebbe about whom to vote for, um, that is, you know, that enables, you know, the more cohesive a community is, the more able it is to deliver a block vote. And the more able a community is to deliver a block vote, the more able it is to sort of magnify its political influence. So, you know, this is sort of the corollary to what I was saying earlier about the way in which, even though per capita, they were quite poor, but by by virtue of their social cohesion, they were able to magnify the impact of their economic resources and sort of, you know, scrape more than scrape together the requisite capital. Um, Likewise, they're able to magnify um, their uh, political influence by virtue of delivering quite reliably, at least up until now, (laughs) a block vote. Yeah. I would say that the United States enabled Satmars to perfect their political skills that they had really begun to develop already in Europe. But um, the way in which interest group politics is played out in the United States, um, the freedom given to various groups to play that game, um, the Sotmers seized on, on, on the opportunity and really perfect, perfected their, their, their political game. Um, at the same time, and this is really an important point in the book, um, they underwent a process that we call unwitting assimilation. Um, by which we mean they absorbed um, many norms from the surrounding society um, in a somewhat unconscious process in order to defend and guard their distinctive way of life. And we think particularly of political and legal norms. Um, So they learned how to play the game of interest group politics by delivering a block vote. They learned how to lobby politicians, you know, on a daily basis by going up to Albany or Washington or bringing politicians into the community. They learned how to um, uh, preserve their interest by overturning a deeply ingrained rabbinic principle of never appealing to Gentile courts by constantly appealing to non-Jewish courts by litigating against um, uh, themselves and, and the outside world um, in order to, uh, to gain uh, advantage. All of these and many other um, uh, developments in the community, we think, uh, belong to this process of unwitting assimilation, a very ironic and, and, and counterintuitive proposition, given that the community professes openly 
that the chief, one of the chief uh, social ills uh, that it seeks to forestall is assimilation. I actually want to. We've been talking about the the, the community uh, in you know in, 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 in the focus has been on the community and, and rightly so. But there's another element of the book that I do want to uh, incorporate into this, and that is what was happening more broadly uh, in American law during this time. And this gets to uh, some of the things that you talked about uh, at uh, earlier, uh, Nomi, which was how American law during this time was changing. That you were seeing uh, a reconsideration of, of certain issues regarding religion and its place in the public sphere. And as you described, that that these trends, uh, you know, the, they were driven by a lot of groups uh, that, you know, that were completely uh, unconnected from uh, this uh, Hasidic community, from the uh, uh, Satmar. They're nonetheless uh, benefiting from them and, and, and uh, using them to uh, achieve their goals. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. So, you know, we've been talking about, you know, American law and the the the, the rights and values and that are embodied in American law. But, you know, that's not a completely homogeneous culture. It's a culture. And as in any culture, um, there are there are divisions and there are different interpretations um, you know, even insofar as there's agreement about what the fundamental principles of the legal order are, there are very different ways of interpreting them. So um, there's um, two key ideas, um, uh, interpretations that are really undergoing a very sustained challenge in precisely the period of time in which Curious Yol is being formed. So you mentioned one. Um, the, the place of religion in the public square. And to that, I would add um, the, the, the second interpretation of, you know, the American constitutional order that is being subject to sustained challenge at this point in time is, is the ideal of integration, right? So, you know, prior to the period of time that we're talking about, which is basically the 70s and 80s, when Curiosiol is being formed, in the 50s and 60s, you saw the, the crystallization of what uh, is oftentimes referred to as the liberal consensus, um, uh, the, which actually was a relatively new way of understanding what America stands for. Um, but it, you know, really in the post-war era, um, the idea that... Um, the separation of church and state means that that the public realm um, has to be a realm from which religion is evacuated. This is the period of time in which for the very first time in the early 60s, the Supreme Court says no prayer in public schools, no devotional Bible reading, no religion in the public schools. And right, no religion in the public schools, no religion in the public square. Um the, even though nowhere in the text of the Constitution does it say separation of church and state, that's the proper way of interpreting the religion clauses in the First Amendment. In the very same time period, right, we get Brown versus Board, we get the civil rights movement, the liberal uh, consensus that separate separation is inherently unequal and therefore the fundamental principle of equal citizenship 
that America is dedicated to requires integration, right? So those two ideas, integration, the separation of church and state, were the key components of the liberal consensus. Well, that liberal consensus is breaking down, right? Um, and that's in large part a, sto- a story about the rise of um, conservatism in America and in particular, the religious wing of the conservative political movement and the conservative legal movement, the the religious right, right, which is absolutely insisting um, that the idea that the Constitution embodies a principle of separation of church and state, that's a myth, that was a mistake, the Supreme Court never should have said that, we need to um, return religion to the public square and restore religion to its traditional role as a public authority. And at the same time, there's a massive retreat from from integrationism. But let's be clear, at the same time that the ideals of integration and separation of church and state are being challenged by the religious right and and the larger conservative political movement, it's also taking a beating from the left, from progressives. Um, This is the time when communitarianism and then multiculturalism and sort of identity politics from the left also are emerging. So that's a really important part of the backdrop um, and, 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 and the way in which law is being reshaped and reinterpreted in ways that turn out to greatly benefit the, the, the Sotmer project. I want to just amplify one point that Nomi made and that really draws back to an observation you had, Mark, which is about how Curious Joel really takes rise. And by the way, Curious Joel, the name, it means village of Joel. It's named after the founding rabbi of the Sotmer community, Joel Teitelbaum. Um, it really uh, takes rise against the backdrop of sort of the countercultural movement of the 1960s. Um, and Nomi just hinted, uh, just alluded to the fact that in response to mm-hmm. the countercultural movement of the 1960s, we see um, a new conservative movement take rise, um, a religious conservative movement take rise, uh, to wit, the Moral Majority, which uh, is established in 1979, two years after the formal incorporation of Curious Joel. So I think we can see, really beginning in the late 70s, the arc of a new era of religious conservatism, of which Curious Joel is a part. Um, I don't want to argue it's the main part, but it is a part of that arc of historical development um, that extends up to the present, a 40-year arc of sort of the rise of religious conservatism. Um, And over the course of time, Curious Joel has grown dramatically from 2,000 residents in 1980 to 33,000 residents in in, uh, 2020. And in some ways, it has become more American in the ways of uh, particularly white religious conservatives, especially insofar as we saw in 2020 in speaking the language of religious liberties as uh, the transcendently significant uh, freedom of freedoms in the United States. Um, And understanding how religious liberties um, have become so important, just look at Supreme Court litigation in uh, the recent year or two, Understanding that is an important part of understanding the rise and success and evolution of Curious Joel New York. And, and yet I, I was thinking about uh, what you described in, in, in the first chapter and then that you returned to at the end of the book, which is how 
for all their success, it, it, it's built on the, these compromises. And I, I talked about the political ones, but I, I was also struck by some of the, the, the social ones that, that they described. For example, uh, how you have the going back to the discussion of education, about how the emphasis is upon Jewish education, and that's the focus and secular education is frowned upon. And, and how within that, though, you have these, uh, you describe how you know, girls get this education because they don't have that same opportunity for religious education, they tend to get more of a secular education, and how that creates opportunities that the community benefits from economically, but at the same time is an example of how they, they, they can't really entirely disengage and, and isolate themselves from all these trends that are taking place. You describe, for example, the, the, the presence of the internet and how that's something that is both at the same time discouraged, but also you know, contributes to the, the prosperity of the community in terms of internet businesses. And I just found that, again, going back to the point that we we're just making, David, it, it, there is something so quintessentially American about this. And I, I kept thinking about that as I was reading the book, Matt, is how so many of these contradictions are, are microcosms of contradictions that we see, you know, in this country to this day in terms of how we address these issues. Right. Well, just to say a word about uh, girls' education versus boys, there's a total separate spheres ideology at work in that regard. Uh, boys are deemed um, those who are obligated uh, to study religious texts uh, as a matter of daily practice. Uh, girls are not obligated, and therefore the educational curriculum, um, uh, th there is segregation uh, in the private school system, and the educational curr curriculum is, is, is very, very different. Girls are afforded much more secular and English language education, which is why girls and women in the community are fluent English speakers, which is not always the case with boys and men raised in the community. Um, but at the same time, I think it's really important to just um, emphasize again, notwithstanding you know, the traditional features of this community, notwithstanding the preservation of separate spheres ideology, notwithstanding the preservation of the Yiddish language as the lingua franca of the community, notwithstanding uh, the community's commitment to what it calls the path of the ancient Israel, notwithstanding that, there is this ongoing process of unwitting assimilation um, uh, with uh, you know, the internet really being, in a certain sense, the most interesting and potentially subversive element uh, as part of that process of assimilation, because the internet really just explodes boundaries um, without even having to leave the physical environs of the community. Uh, it's why um, community leaders are, um, you know, see it as perhaps the gravest threat to the survival and well-being of the community. Um, and it will be very interesting to see, you know, as we look ahead uh, to, uh, it'll be very interesting to see how, how I think two vectors um, interact with one another. One will be growing access to the internet and social media that will open up new worlds to um, uh, Satmar Hasidim and particularly a small number who will be um, uh, very attracted, um, uh, some of whom may choose to leave the community um, in larger numbers than they do at present, some of whom may stay but simply lead um, what a colleague of ours calls a double life right? Um, outwardly um, part of the community, but inwardly just living uh, a life of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, that, that's, that, that takes place on the internet. Um, so there's that, uh, th there's that vector. 
as against that, and indeed in reaction to it, uh, yes, this is our colleague Ayala Fader who came up with this idea of uh, uh, double lifers um, in a wonderful uh, book called Hidden Heretics, which I encourage everybody to go out and, and, and read. Um, but in reaction to that, sort of in the dialectics of Satmar uh, religious uh, and cultural uh, history, um, we will, I think, also see uh, a retrenchment uh, amongst contemporaries of those who are drawn to the internet, um, an increasing commitment to ritual observance, an increasing commitment to tightening the boundaries, to preventing access to uh, dangerous social media. Um, and these two vectors, which move in opposite directions, um, I think are going to intensify uh, in coming years. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, <laughs> David mentioned um, the increasing vis visibility of um, controversies over religious liberty. Um, and so that's actually, that was, that's been a, a research project of mine for quite a number of years. Um, uh, you know, thinking particularly in the context of legal disputes, um, when people go to court, um, saying they have a right not to follow laws um, that they have religious objections to, um, and they say, I have this right because there's this clause in the First Amendment that says the government cannot prohibit the free exercise of religion um, and making me follow a law. Maybe it's a COVID restriction. Maybe it's a civil rights ordinance that prohibits, um, you know, that says purveyors of goods and services cannot deny services to customers on the basis of their sexual orientation. Whatever the law is, um, you know, the claim that we see being made more and more and that we see the courts and in particular the Supreme Court being more and more receptive to is that being forced to follow a law that everybody is required to follow is discrimination against people whose religious beliefs conflict with that law. And that's a violation of the right to the free exercise of religion, that that's a violation. That I think that, you know, so my project is to really try to develop a better understanding of what does it mean to be discriminated against on the basis of belief or to discriminate against people on the basis of their beliefs. And by the way, you know, that's, that's an issue that extends beyond the specific case of religious beliefs. People also talk, make claims that they're being discriminated against on the basis of their political beliefs. Well, I think we don't have a very good comprehension of what that means. So my project is dedicated to that. Yeah. Thank you for asking, Mark. Um, so I'm, in one sense, I want to mention very quickly two ideas. Um, I'm now working, researching a book called Victims of Victims that explores uh, the interconnections amongst three important uh, population displacements in the mid-20th century, the displacements of Jews in Europe uh, during uh, the Second World War, the displacement of Palestinians uh, in 1948 during the Nakba, and the displacement of Jews from Arab countries, um, and really look at um, 
the serial and causal relations amongst these three. But so that takes me back to sort of one of my older pursuits. But I'm also involved in a new collaborative called the Haredi Research Group that is studying um, the um, the history, the uh, ethnography, uh, the demography uh, of of um, traditionally observant uh, uh, Jews like Satmar Hasidim. And for me, really, one of the most interesting questions is um, what does 2020, the year 2020, represent? Um, a continuity or a dramatic rupture? This is the year of COVID, the last year of the Trump presidency, at least the first Trump presidency. Um, and um, we saw um, a new, what seemed to be a new form of of uh, behavior amongst Haredi and Hasidic Jews, including Satmar Hasidim, a new boldness, uh, a new audacity, um, a new alignment with uh, with white religious conservatives, um, manifest in very interesting uh, data point in Curious Joel, uh, which uh, maybe I'll conclude with and just say I'm interested in knowing more about this. In the year 2016, uh, 55% of Curious Joel voted for Donald Trump, 45% for Hillary Clinton. Um, in 2020, over 99% of Kirstel voted for Donald Trump. Uh, that's, uh, uh, on the face of it, a dramatic shift that requires much more research uh, and analysis. Well, those all sound like fascinating projects, and I look forward to seeing the results of them. Well, thank you so much for having us. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you.